0: Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right. Welcome into the Hoisty Colors Podcast. It is our season wrap up edition. I'm the host, Stephen Igo, of Hoisty Colors Podcast. I am joined by Brett Hickman, the head coach at West Brunswick High School. the contributor to HTC. Brett, uh, we were just talking. I was really hopeful we would be recapping a bowl win, a, a a bowl victory over Boston College. Unfortunately, we are not talking about that game, but we do have a season to wrap up, a successful season to wrap up. So uh, we'll get into a lot. We're going to give out some, you know, uh, so, some, some awards as the show goes on. Um, but at least we are recapping a winning season, Brett, for the first time in seven years the Pirates have a winning record and we get to review that. So uh, that's a breath of fresh air.
1: Yeah, no doubt. I mean, just always good to come off what was a bowl season, you know, regardless of whether or not we got to play that bowl or not. And, uh, you know, obviously the trend, we've been trending in the right way in my opinion, starting really with the SMU win toward the end of last year and, Glad that that spring boarded springboarded us through, you know, spring football and then and then the summer and then, you know, especially to recover after an 0-2 start and and still find a way to get at least part of the bowl experience. Um, and, and and I think we're we're seeing the natural progression that a that a program with a solid culture has. You know, we've lost big, more competitive in year two, more competitive in year three, and then found a way to win some of those close games. toward the end of the year namely uh, memphis and navy that that put the pirates over the top and back in the postseason
0: when you you know you look at mike houston's tenure thus far at ecu and there you know early on year one i remember you saying hey this guy's going to win here he's won everywhere he's been let's stay patient Uh, it finally seems to have paid off this year in year three you know they had two losing seasons back-to-back, back, one of those being a COVID year, which is kind of tough to measure. But how important is it you think that, for the most part, it seems like the administration was able to stay patient with him, not, not that they were going to fire him after two years, but it, it, it never seemed like he was on the hot seat. And I think we all kind of realized this was going to be a process. And in this day and age in college football, when people are not very patient, how important was it for maybe things to stay together and then finally come together in year three, and and what really was a
1: true rebuild. Yeah, I mean, I I think their patience with him. I think his willingness to make tough decisions as it relates to coaching staff changes. I mean, he's he's pushed the buttons after year one, making the change at defensive coordinator, and then improving other spots on the staff. And in you know year two and year three, I guess is you know I'm sure as we'll get into it, but. You know, bringing in you know a new guy to coach the tight ends and the production that that group had, and you know Blake and and retooling the defensive staff with Blake and Steve Ellis. You know, he's he's he, he's learned as he's gone along too. You know, each each situation is different. I, I do find it very ironic, just kind of being on the ground floor of of Coach Holtz's tenure, tenure when he came in. I mean, it's kind of crazy is that he's following the guy who followed a very successful guy and Steve Logan. And then there was John Thompson. And, you know, how much damage can a guy do in two years? Well, you know, you had the rough era that was, you know, I mean, it had its moments of, of supreme success and then, you know, it had its moments where it was teetering a little bit closer to 500, but it was, you know, by every, by every measure a very good and sustainable program. And then you let him go and then all the things happened with, with the, with the era, with, with, you know Scotty and and Comper and those guys. So I mean I think kind of being on the ground floor of Coach Holtz's of tenure and seeing how big that how big of a task that was, and Coach Holtz got it done in two years. But you know at that time Conference USA was not nearly the the ticket that the AAC is right now. So you had you had better competition. You, you know in my opinion the talent was not as was not there particularly along the lines of scrimmage. So it was a two and a half, three year rebuild, and it's just, um, you know, credit to John Gilbert, credit to the fans. I mean, I know there's there's some frustrations, but I I don't think, yeah, I mean, certainly you have the the fringe lunatics that are there every year, but I think ninety nine percent of the of the pirate nation kind of stuck with Coach Houston and said, you know, we're going to give him, you know, three years before you know there's any talk of. Moving on from this, and and they have, and and the administration has, and obviously it looks like we're we're well on our way to being a regular player in the postseason moving forward. And uh, you know, as the AAC changes landscapes, are we able to move into that upper echelon that that Cincinnati's leaving and UCF's leaving, and uh, you know, and, and certainly that's the goal moving forward.
0: There's been some discussion about you know the schedule. Was easier this year, and that had a lot to do with uh, the the seven and five record. And I think some of that is is fair. I think you know Temple was down, Tulane was down, you know. And you look at ECU's schedule; their wins all came over teams with non-winning records, except for Marshall. Memphis finished five hundred; they did not get a chance to play in the bowl. I have my own feelings about this, uh, specifically based on how they played Houston and UCF, and probably should have won those games, but. When you take a look at that argument, Brett, is that kind of like a fair one where people are saying that it's a little bit, I
1: don't know, uh, glorified based off the strength of schedule? Who you play, so you play. I mean, it is what it is. I mean, ECU, for as much as we've dissected it, they haven't been a program over the last six or seven years that should go out and schedule four P5s or three P5s in the non-conference like we were with Coach Holtz and, and even roughing, you know, I mean, I can remember those schedules loaded with the with the states and the Carolinas and the Virginias, the Virginia Techs and the West Virginias, but I don't see many people going out of their way to schedule Appalachian right now. You know, they're not doing it, and that was a very good G5 team that, you know, to me, that was a better football team than over half the people in the ACC, you know, so in my opinion, they played two very – and Marshall, for that matter. You know, you played two very, very good G5s that are – you know, typically knocking down double-digit winning seasons or, you know, up or toward eight or nine. And then, you know, South Carolina ended up with a winning record in 7-6 and, and beat Auburn and, um, you know, beat Missouri, beat North Carolina, beat a lot of quality football teams as they got better throughout the year. So, you know, the schedule is what it is. You win seven out of ten. I mean, I'd, I'd have to look back at what everybody in the AAC was in the years past – when we played them, but yeah, I mean, he's beat Temple and USF the year before, you know, this program changed when, he, when we figured out a way how to beat SMU last year. And then, you know, certainly Memphis on the road this year, Marshall on the road this year. And, you know, the, even though Navy clearly has not been what they were uh, five or 10 years ago, I mean, they've still been the ultimate thorn in ECU's sides to finding a way to win that game. They're, there's tangible progress, you know, I think you can make that argument when you're six and six or, you know, but, you know, it was seven, five, two games over 500 was plenty of good road wins and, you know, it was very deserving of, a, of of the bowl game.
0: Yeah, for sure. And, and I'll say this about Navy. They, I think they finished maybe four and eight, uh, but they beat a quality army team would yeah. beat Missouri in the bowl, and uh, Navy had the third toughest schedule in America. So I mean, if they and have played have, Cincinnati
1: better than everybody other than Tulsa, I mean, so, so that was a,
0: that's a legitimate win.
1: I mean, uh, yeah, going to Navy,
0: um, we so know, the
1: always so, yeah, hard.
0: Yeah, and, and I think that you know if ECU would have gone on the road to UCF, you know I think a nine win team or to Houston, and they would have got if they would have lost by thirty points, if they wouldn't have shown up at all versus Cincinnati. You know, I think you can make that argument, but the eye test alone I think kind of leads you to hey, ECU is clearly ascending, and then in some ways, as we'll get into to kind of wrap
1: up the show later, I think they're right there in terms of. Yeah, I mean, I think when you look at a year, typically you're you could easily be two wins better than you were, you could be two losses worse than you were, you know. So, in the end, it weighed itself out. It's a football team that should have won at UCF and Houston, but. Uh, to be honest, probably didn't deserve to win at Navy and, and didn't deserve to win like it deserves, not the right word. But, you know, in terms of game control, you know, I don't think anybody believes that, you know, the Marshall game was totally just dominated by ECU or whatever the case may be. And then make a 54 yard field goal at Navy. So seven and five is about where this team, you know, should be.
0: All right, Brett, let's get into some of uh, these uh, awards or superlatives, whatever you want to call them. We'll go down a list I have. And we will start with offensive MVP. And I think this one in many ways is kind of obvious based off the year he had. We'll each give our, our answer. We may agree, we may not agree. I'll let you go first, Brett. Who is your offensive uh, MVP for the 2021 EC football
1: team? Yeah, I mean, I think it has to be Keaton Mitchell. I think the, I think the sense that it's the first – Number one, first a thousand yard back. I think since Ventavius Cooper, I could be wrong there, but I know it's been seven or eight years since uh, we've had that. And and I I say this about Mitchell not only for the sheer amount of rushing yardage. I think it's the first home run back we've had really since uh, Chris Johnson, you know, in in two thousands where we we didn't get the production at the X and Z wide receiver positions down the field as we needed, but the emergence of Keaton as a as a big play threat, not only in the run game, but in the pass game, in the flare screen game or whatever, and Ryan Jones, for that matter, who caught 36, 37 balls, but was a real factor in the second half of the game. Being able to get explosive plays down the seam and in the run game gave this team something it desperately needed um, in lieu of not getting that on the outside. So, uh, yeah, I think it's got to be Keaton.
0: Yeah, I'm going on Keaton Mitchell, too. I mean, you talk about just game-changing plays. 6.5 yards per carry, 94 yards per game. And, you know, him and Rajay basically finished with the same amount of carries. Keaton had nine more, and, and the yardage wasn't close, and production wasn't close. You know, Rajay obviously still had his role. He's still very important in the offense. But it just – you know, Keaton was the game-changer this year. And it, it felt like every game ECU won, he had a big game. And if he didn't have a big game – ECU largely lost. So I feel like, you know, he's your most valuable offensive player because he directly correlated to the success of the offensive many wins. So, obviously, Holton Aylers had a good year. Probably deserves some amount of mention. Uh, You mentioned Ryan Jones, some of those other guys. So, you know, we'll get more into that uh, maybe when we talk about our offensive unsung hero. But I definitely think uh, Keaton Mitchell is the obvious choice for MVP. All right, defensive MVP – Again, I think this one's probably pretty obvious. I'll go first this time, Brett. Uh, Jaquan McMillan, uh, I mean, got to be one of the, the best corners. I know you think he's one of the best corners you've ever seen at ECU. Uh, I don't think that's an overstatement. He, he's consistently productive, uh, makes game-changing plays, picks sixes, You know, pa- passes batter away, downfield, a one-on-one coverage, tackles in space, just does it all, and he's – He's a team guy. He's not a me guy, which I think is very important in this in this era of college football. But uh, he's just he's an elite cover corner, and I think it allows you to do so much defensively. And I assume you're going to agree with me here.
1: Yeah, absolute no brainer here. You know, not not only in terms of the coverage aspect. I mean, I think he was. I think he led the team in solo tackles, and I think he was second or third on the team in – total tackles. So, you know, just a well-rounded guy. Um, you know, I think obviously he can cover you one on one. He can play the zone, the zone scheme cover two. I thought he did a good job, made a couple of plays in that. Um, you know, really just by far the the overall strength of this defense was the depth, you know, in my sense, you know, there's not a truly other quote unquote statistically great player on that unit other than him, which which made this a pretty uh, simple choice, but the, the overall strength of the defense was, you know, the quality of player that exists really from two to 16 or 17 or, or whatever the case was.
0: Yeah. I mean, Malik Fleming, also a very good cornerback who, uh, you know, deserves more attention than he probably gets, but you know, Jaqueline McMillan, when you look at, you know, we we just don't think he's a great player. Pro football focus graded him the the single best coverage grade among any corner in the entire country. So I mean, there are other corners with better uh, run defense stats and, and tackling statistics, but basically they're saying Jaquan McMillan, pound for pound, the best cover corner in America. And you watch ECU football games, I don't think you can really uh, really disagree with that. So he's our defensive MVP. We'll move on. We'll go with our offensive unsung hero. You can go in a lot of directions with this one, um, whether it be a skilled guy who got overlooked or is just kind of the guy who, who does the work. Is a little bit unsung, but very key factor of the offense. Brad, I'll let you start this one off. Do you have a a uh, offensive unsung hero?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you can go two different directions. I think Audio Matosho had his best year this year, you know, we, at least as a reliable third down, move the chains kind of guy. Um, you know, I think he caught looking at my stats here, 39 catches for 487, 12 yards. I mean, that's that's pretty good production from a you know, a, a, a pseudo number two guy, in my opinion. And I, th- I thought, really, at times this year, that the group that uh, this is two it or twofold with with both Ryan Jones and Shane Calhoun. Obviously, from his performance against Marshall, I thought the tight end position really coming along um, was 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 big this year. And you know, without those guys in in some certain situations, I don't know if if VCU has as much production offensively in the games that they do win. Cause it seemed like when that position group got involved and played well, those were the games that, that ECU was able to win, particularly, you know, as it went down the stretch in the AAC.
0: Yeah. My unsung hero. I I agree with all those guys. I think they're definitely, definitely worthy. Uh, I'm going to go with Noah Henderson at, at, at right tackle because, you know, we, we talk a lot about the offensive line struggles, um, but those guys, you know, they're working their tails off to get better. And Noah in particular basically played the whole year through pain, came back from a back injury that cost him the entire 2020 season, worked all offseason physical therapy, all that to get back, and was probably one of their better offensive linemen, even playing through some discomfort. I think pro football focus graded him out the best pass blocker on the team. Um and at a position where they had two injuries, two season ended injuries with Bailey Malavic and Rob Vanderlyn. if Noah would have went down, I'm not sure what would have happened at tackle. So uh, I give I give a shout out to Noah Henderson uh, and really you know the whole line. Fernando Fras is another guy who played some different roles, um, and I thought did a, did a really good job. So, but Noah Henderson gets my vote. As yeah, the, and I don't uh,
1: think you can. Uh, you know, and I will mention the Avery Jones, guy who hadn't played a lot of center you know, then that's a hard man. I don't think people, people think you just snap the ball and play offensive line, you know, like the, the guard it's just like playing guard or tackle. I mean, you, you snap it and then you block Well, you do do that, but you're often, you're just in so many different situations, whether or not where to declare, where the line's supposed to slide, you know, who's got who and blitz pick up. And that's just a hard thing to digest if you haven't played a lot of it in your life. So, um, You know, I know he wasn't graded great on PFF, and and he had his moments where he really struggled. But I really do think there's a lot of talent there, and I think he's a guy that that you can build around moving forward at at that spot.
0: Yeah. They've gone with a first-year center, I think, each of the past three years. So, hopefully, with him being still two years of eligibility left, can kind of grow into that role. Uh, Defensive unsung uh, hero, this is a tough one because, as you mentioned, Brett, I mean, there's like you could probably do fifteen different players. I mean, because they rotate so many guys in and out, whether it be D line, linebacker, safety. I mean, this is a this is a challenge you want to pick. And as I'm I'm talking to you right now, I'm kind of stalling because I don't know who to pick. So I'm, <laughs> you got any clue on who you're going to go with on this one? Uh,
1: you know, I mean, I think it's like you said, I and like I said earlier, I mean, I think the strength of this defense was in obviously, I mean, you got the Thorpe guy and, and you get the All-American and you've got all that, but I, you know, this team had decent production from 20 guys. They had 20 guys on their defense who had 10 or more tackles, you know, and when you take, when you take into account that you really don't rotate corners a lot, your are too deep is about 20 guys, you know, because Fleming and McMillan played both snaps. So, you know, if you played in the two deep, you did a good enough job that where they trusted you. Um, you know, in terms of where you go here, uh I think the I think the one thing that comes out to me is I, I thought the safety play was better this year than it's been. And it still had its moments where it wasn't great, but you got four picks from Saba. You know, Juan Powell did some good things. Uh Dorso. DJ Ford obviously, you know, got a little banged up, so that's not a bad group. Malik Fleming, like you said, had his moments, particularly after coming back from not a great outing in the opener. Um, but I'm going to give basically this award to the entire defensive line because I, I very I thought really after that first game. Um, against Appalachian and kind of getting gassed a little bit there against South Carolina. I don't think there was just many games where I thought they just got totally pushed around, pushed around, and and the strength was in the numbers in that group. So just consistent, consistently there, consistently anchoring the line of scrimmage and allowing those linebackers and those safeties to clean up and and get all the tackles, but a very solid group uh, performance this year from those guys.
0: Yeah, good pick. I, I was leaning towards Elijah Morris for some of the reasons you mentioned. I mean, he—I guess if you had to pick a leader of the defensive front, he was kind of that guy. Probably, I don't have the numbers in front of me. Probably played the most snaps. You know, not the biggest guy, but consistently takes up blockers. Consistently plays his tail off. Um, you know, made some plays versus Navy when they needed it. I think Malik Fleming's definitely worthy of a of a shout out because you know, else, outside of McMillan, was probably. The, one of the highest graded guys in coverage on the team. Um, you know, was a honorable mention in all conference selection by PFF. So uh, clearly he's, he's kind of locked down, helped lock down the other side of the field. Uh, for me, if I had to give one out, I'm going to go Jeremy Lewis because really he's, he was one of the few guys on the edge to really provide a consistent uh, rush aspect all year. You know, there were times that he looked a little overwhelmed just because it was his first year playing on defense, but, I definitely think Jeremy Lewis, all things considered, stepped up in a pretty big way.
1: Yeah, I give you that. And then Manny Hickman, seven TFLs, three sacks. I mean, that's a pretty good year from 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 cousin Manny, as I call him when we're watching the game. No relation, uh, in case you guys can't tell. But uh, you know, a lot of lot of guys. I, I do think Rick DeBruce started playing more like he did last year toward the end of this year. Or so. You know, maybe he regains his form moving, moving forward. But, you know, who in that group takes the next step? You know, to 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 join the the all A C all A A C type players, and then uh, that'll be key moving forward into 22.
0: As we keep going down our superlative list, uh, this this will be another difficult one. Best win, and I really think Brett, there are three main choices here. Uh, Ironically enough, they all come on the road. At Marshall, the comeback. Uh, At Memphis, the bowl clinching win. And at Navy, the game-winning field goal. I mean, you can make a fair argument for any of those three. Personally, (sighs) for me, just given the significance of of both wins, it comes down to Marshall and Memphis. Uh, I'm going to go Marshall because – of the comeback, I feel like if that game doesn't happen, if you don't come back, what what are we talking about right now? I mean, if you go zero and three, how much does that change the course of the season? Uh, do you agree with that? Any other uh, any other thoughts there with best win on the season?
1: No, I mean, I think there's different layers to all of them. I think the Marshall win, like you said, I think it was the springboard or the launching pad or whatever you want to call it, it kind of gaining the confidence to being able to win close games. Um, You know, and that's – I mean, that kind of is what it was. You know, the the significance of getting to six wins at at Memphis, obviously a a great moment. I think for all of us that are longstanding Pirates and that have followed this program for the better part of this century, you know, those guys up in Annapolis have just been such a major thorn in our side. I mean, it just – I think that was the second win, you know, in whatever, eight or nine games. I mean, it's just – So, different layers to all of them. I think the one that made you go, how in the crap did we do it, was Marshall. I think probably the most satisfactory. I mean, literally, man, in my house, the jumping up and down after stopping that two-point play in the Memphis game. I'm going with that one just because I I think it kind of signified that, you know, we've all gone through these rough five or six years following it and, the frustrations and all of that and just the exuberance to see the team in the locker room and, and finally getting back to bowl eligibility and and then securing the winning season at Navy. But, I mean, I'm going to go with the Memphis game.
0: Yeah, I mean, you can make, again, a fair argument for all of them. They, are, they all are significant. They all were huge. And, yeah, being on the field, I, I tell you what, the best celebration was definitely the Memphis game because the guys were smoking cigars. I mean, the families were there because it was the wives' trip. Uh, for the coaches so it was it was an all-out basically that was like a bowl win itself Uh, they did not get to experience a bowl win because of the boston college deal but uh, that that was amazing to be there for that but i think the weight of the world was lifted off many of the guys shoulders after the marshall game too just because they had never really won a game like that on the road and i think that just kind of changed the the outcome of everything All right, let's keep going down. We'll we'll look at the reverse side of this, the most disappointing loss, Brett. And I guess when you play a lot of close games, you get some dramatic wins. You also get some just absolute uh, heart-wrenching losses. Um, Off the top of my head, South Carolina, for obvious reasons, uh, the the pick six right before halftime, the UCF game. felt like UCU really dominated that game throughout. Just could not punch it in in the red zone. Ah, uh, the Houston game. Similar, similar circumstances. Had the ball a lot, just couldn't move the ball, and and couldn't come come through on that final drive. Houston wins in overtime. Those are those are the big three for me. Um, you know, most disappointed loss. I, I feel like I have to go South Carolina. And even though South Carolina ended up being a pretty good team by the end of the year, I just feel like ECU looked like a much better team that day. You had them at home. And honestly, if you don't throw the pick six right before halftime, I feel like you could win that game in, in pretty comfortable fashion. So South Carolina gets my vote, although UCF, man, watching that live, that was that was super disappointing.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think anytime you start talking about from a coaching standpoint the ones that stick with you the longest are the ones you've got control of the game you know when you feel like you outplayed them you feel like you out schemed them you feel like you outcoached them you feel like you did everything other than win the game and the South Carolina UCF fit those to a tee now from an in-state rivalry perspective and being surrounded by some app people on my own coaching staff that wasn't fun to get drilled like we did that night and, uh, but you know the two that you just sit back and you you think about uh, – Houston's better than East Carolina this year. It's a better football team. You know, they won 11 games, and the fact that that we were in that game at the end was was testament to character and willingness to fight. And The same thing that got us back in the game, and we were able to win that at Marshall. But, you know, the two games that you just had total control of and you didn't find a way to win or you couldn't make the one play you needed to – Either put it on ice, or you made the you made the wrong play that led a team back in the game, as the case was there. Like you mentioned, the pick six against USC. I mean, it just it's those two games. You went South Carolina. I'll go UCF just because that's a league game. But you know, tomato, tomato, they both sucked.
0: (laughs) The Keaton Mitchell fumble and all the red zone issues at UCF. Man, that that was one, and that that went into a bye week too. So you kind of had to sit on that one. That was painful. Yeah, but South Carolina, that man, that pick six. And and, and the fact that you probably won't have an SEC team at home again, maybe ever, based on the way college football is going. Uh, But either of those are are very worthy. All right, best coaching job. Let's go back to the positive side of things. Best coaching job. I'll let you – you know, we can go Mike Houston here. We can go any position coach. We can go coordinator. And I think there's a lot of arguments for uh, for several different coaches. I'll let you start it off, Brett. Who comes to mind for you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say really all those guys on defense have done a terrific job in two years. You know, taking young guys and, um, you know, whether or not it's been Tesh, who's, like I mentioned, has just had a very solid group. Blake kind of overhauling a culture and, and doing those things and, um, you know, not – uh, obviously, I thought the inside linebacker play was solid, but just the overall development of a culture and how hard we play defensively. Uh, but I do, I mean, just because the year Jaquan had at corner and, and Malik Fleming continuing to get better and better, I'm gonna go with Steve Ellis. I think that's uh, just from a production standpoint. From a you know as aggressive as as Blake likes to call a game, a lot of times your corners are out there in in one on one situations, and I thought this team did a by and large, you know, as the year went on, did a really good job of uh, limiting big pass plays, obviously against Navy, gave up a couple long runs. But, uh, yeah, after the Appalachian game, just standing out, a lot of just take shot deep balls. I thought this was a pretty good football team at defending those. And uh, I'm going go with Coach Ellis. Yeah,
0: Coach Ellis has done a phenomenal job his two years at ECU. I think there's there's zero question about that. I uh, hope they can keep him long-term because he's a really good coach. Uh, you can make an argument for for Blake Carroll, Roy Tesh, Tim Dowse. Even did a good job with a younger position group. Uh, Trip Weaver, like you said, safety's improved. I'm going to go on the offensive side of the ball, and Latrell Scott, you know, I wasn't sure how he exactly would fit in coming over as a Norfolk State head coach, going back to being an assistant. But, man, the guys he kind of coached up, Ryan Jones went from in the spring to being a guy that I was hearing may not – exactly pan out as a transfer from Oklahoma to being a major contributor. Shane Cahoon doing some special things. He also helped with the receivers. Um, And we saw C.J. Johnson, you know, not have a huge year, but have, I think, a little bit more of a consistent year as opposed to 2020. Um, And so I just feel like his impact overall, especially on the the tight end room, is significant. For the first time since Bryce Williams, ECU actually had a viable – you know, legitimate weapon in the passing game with the tight ends. And that's just been sorely missing for, for several years now. So I go
1: Latrell Scott. I do. And I like that. You know, I like it for another reason though, being a head coach and you know, your coordinators. I know coach K has been a head coach before and, and shank at the high school level. And so I'm, I'm not excluding what they do, but when you're, when you're calling plays in, in terms of a coordinator, um, and you're coaching the O-line, you know, it's really hard to help a head coach manage the game. But, you know, one thing that caught me on the TV copies is how much conversation it seemed seemingly was going on between Coach Scott and Coach Houston often, you know, about game management, when to use timeouts and things of that nature. And I could be wrong, but, uh, you know, every time it looked like it was a key situation, he, he looked to be the guy who was kind of the sounding board on the staff – uh, kind of handling those things that a traditional quote unquote assistant head coach would handle. So, you know, turned out to be a, a really uh, terrific hire there uh from from Fontail Mines to him. And, you know, not to mention his recruiting ties to the, you know, the the 757, which I think will ECU will reap the benefits of uh here in the ensuing years if they can hang on to him.
0: All right, position that underachieved the most. We got a few more here on the superlative list. Um, for me, it's 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 the wide receivers as a whole. I still feel like the group has been largely inconsistent uh, in terms of just consistently, obviously, a game in a game out, making the plays in one on one coverage, getting separation. And Tyler Sneed towards the end of the year really started to look more like Tyler Sneed. You know, CJ, I thought, had a more consistent year, but didn't have a, a huge year. You know, you look at his drop numbers, they were down considerably from a year ago. But it still felt like he was only getting two to three catches most games. Um, you know, Audio on show, we do have to give the staff credit for, you know, having him have the best year of his career. But it just feels like still something's not quite 100% right at that position. Uh, Josiah Hatfield, sometimes he looks incredible. Sometimes he disappears. You know, we didn't see much depth at all at that position, and it just felt like there were times where uh, the group, especially against good corners, struggled to get separation. Um, but that's just my take. Do you do you agree with that, or you go with somebody else?
1: Look, oh, yeah, I mean, I go with the wideouts, and I'll tell you, that whatever it is, and, and I know you hit on the boards on this. So, and, and there's going to be a change there from a coaching standpoint. They got to find someone who can who can reach. Chris or C sorry, Chris Johnson, CJ Johnson, uh and Josiah Hatfield, because those are the two most talented guys in that group, all right, in, in my opinion for various reasons. For CJ, it's the big, the strength, the physicality, the ability to win one-on-one 50-50 balls, and, and for Josiah, the ability to run by people. You know, we we saw, you know, his playmaking ability down the field at times, but it's just they're they're consistently inconsistent. And you don't know if that's because of their approach in practice or or you don't, I mean, you you don't see it every day. So you don't know if it's a them problem. You don't know if it's a coaching issue. You don't know if it's a scheme issue, you know, when you're not privy to the the all 22. But I've seen enough video to know that who can reach those two guys is who's going to elevate that position group and the offense moving forward, you know, because I do you count on Tazi Hudson or Savage or whoever it is moving forward? Like I said, I mean, we we figured out how to get explosive plays from the running back position. They figured out how to involve Tyler Snead significantly both years or, you know, since he's really been a key cog. And then you've got Calhoun and Jones back at tight end. If that position emerges, now you've given Holton no more excuses in terms of weaponry, in terms of, deals but you know over underachieving is the the connotation there is that this group has talent but they're not performing up to their talent level now is it the most underperforming group not in my opinion I mean to me that's you know that's still the offensive line but I you know I don't think that's as much coaching I think anybody who's ever been involved in college football taking over a program they tell you that's usually the last piece to really fit because it takes the most amount of kids um it was a program that has been decimated by attrition, by injury, by whatever. And we're still playing catch up from, from the previous regimes era. And, and they're doing some things to alleviate it, you know, whether or not it's hitting the portal and, and recruiting the position better in my opinion. But uh, you know, if, if the program wants to take the next step, you know, the defense has been figured out. I think they're going to continue to improve offensively. It's it, we, We've got to just get better on the edge at wide out and we've got to continue to move forward uh, with moving our offensive line to at least, uh, you know, an average to slightly above average unit in in the AAC. Because right now this team's got it. There's plenty of guys on this roster. I mean, you would say if you look at this roster one to 85, there's 50 guys or 60 guys that you can win the AAC with, in my opinion. You know, it's still going to come down to the development of of the O-line and, and um, the explosiveness that the offense can have moving forward with pushing the football down the field in the throw game.
0: Yeah, I wrote an article, Five Things ECU Needs to Improve Upon to Realistically Compete for a Championship in 2022. And the first two things I mentioned, offensive line play was number one. Number two was – uh, winning those plays on the outside, whether it be receiver, more accurate passes, pass protection that leads to that, etc. Uh, I just think they had to be clearly better in those two areas on, on offense uh, to win in 2022, At least to win at that level, because if you watch Cincinnati, you watch Houston. That's what those teams do. I mean, they they win up front and they win in the, you know the one on one plays. So uh,
1: I mean, even you'll see it. You'll see it tomorrow night in the playoff game with with you know, Georgia, who's a 12 and one football team, and they've consistently pushed people around all year. They're elite at the line of scrimmage on both sides of the ball, but eventually you meet your match, you know, with, with East Carolina, that's somebody else, in the AAC or whoever you play non-conference, you know, with Georgia, they're only going to meet their match one or two times a year, but it's still the fine line comes down to, you know, when we beat somebody who we just can't flat push around, or we can't run for 220 yards or whatever the case may be. It's going to come down to, can can you win one-on-one, and can you run by people? And um, in in situations like that, the two guys that have got to be able to do that are your two most talented guys, and that's C.J. and, and Josiah, in my opinion. If, and if they'll move forward and we can find ways to get them to football, uh, you know, the, the sky's the limit offensively because I think when you look at it, the team, 430 yards a game or whatever the case was, total offense this year, you know, make one or two more plays a game you're up there at 470 480 you know now you've got a top 20 offense that goes along with what we what we what should be a top 20 defense as well
0: all right our last superlative to give away and then we will take one uh further brief look in 2022 uh best play of the season brett hickman uh you know for me i think this one's fairly obvious because of uh the fact that it ended the game. But I'm going Owen Daffer's 54-yard walk-off field goal at Navy. We talked about the significance of the win, second win ever over Navy, first since 2011. You know, when he lined up for that kick, I I watched him in warm-ups from that same spot, the same area of the field, going in that direction. And about half the kicks did not make it to the upright. I don't know what adrenaline he found, uh, because it had only gotten colder since warmups, but he nailed that thing about five or six yards. And I was stunned in, in disbelief because I didn't think it would happen. So, to see that kick live, uh, that, for me, the best play of the year. Mike Houston's face also said it, said it all with his reaction. Uh, yeah. your,
1: your pick uh, for that, Brett? We were a 9-0 and football team in 2019 against New Hanover, and, and we couldn't field Owens' punts. Um, so you know, I, I kind of knew what kind of talent he had, but that's another, I mean, you got to give him a ton of credit. To that he had a big time freshman year, missed two extra points, was 19 for 23 for field goals. Uh, that's the easy one. Again, it comes down to those three games, whether or not it's that kick against Navy, whether or not it's the you know, the the stop two-point conversion at Memphis or or the pick there, you know, in the red zone against Marshall that McMillan had, you know. So Take your pick at any one of them. I think you know. Since I picked the Memphis game as the most important win in my opinion, I'm going with the with the stop two point conversion. Uh, you know, there to pull up secondary contain and then knock the ball down on the kind of prayer for the end to the end zone. Just the euphoria that that I think a lot of us felt getting to that sixth win.
0: Yeah, and McMillan's pick. Yeah, that was a good one too, because I almost forgot about that one. That was a moment where like you felt like Marshall was still gonna find a way to win. And until he came down with that ball, that kind of changed uh, like we talked about, the complexion of the season. Also, Tyler Sneed's throw to Josiah Hatfield in the South Carolina game for as far as trick plays was incredible. And he also had the throwback to Holt Naylor's for a touchdown in the in the Marshall game, or at least I think got close to the end zone. I don't know exactly where that finished, but so there were a handful of highlight plays, certainly more than in past years. All right, Brett, let's take one quick look to 2022. We discussed kind of the main things offensively that we feel like ECU needs to do to, to become a legitimate championship contender. When you look at this defense, they'll pretty much have everybody back except for Bruce Bivens, Aaron Ramsour, DJ Ford's gone, Warren Sab has gone at safety, but you know, they've clearly ascended the past two years. They've improved considerably under Blake Carroll. What's the next step for this defense to become even even better and, and kind of maybe even lead ECU to a championship in 2022?
1: In well, I mean, they've got to establish the, the core of the defense moving moving forward. I mean, you mentioned a lot of those guys that are not going to be back, whether or not it's an inside linebacker or safety. I mean, it's just like building a defense in baseball, right? I mean, you want to be really good defensively at – catcher the middle infield and center field. So, you know, establishing who's going to be in the two deep and, and can those guys perform like all of those guys did at inside linebacker and at safety is, is clearly a um, priority in terms of personnel. I think for the other 15 or 16 that have played a lot coming back, you know, just personal improvements, okay, what did you struggle against? If you were an edge guy, did, did you struggle against taking on the tight end wing combinations or, how do we generate a better pass rush from, from the edge or whatever the case might be? Okay, this D-lineman might have been better at slanting and angling, but not as good at taking on a double team. So anchoring down on in these kind of pre-spring meetings that the coaches will have after winter condition. Okay, this is where we need you to improve fundamentally. Um, you know, and then the coaches they'll they'll Get involved. I mean, the one thing the early signing day has allowed you to do in January is you get a head start on junior recruiting. But, you know, as things start to wind down toward the end of January, you know, February basically until the beginning of spring ball, they'll take inventory of of every type of scheme that gave them trouble. You know, for instance, they'll they'll take a close look back at that app game and in the second half of the South Carolina game where they struggled defending stretch run or, um, you know, whatever the case may be. Okay. How did we do against bootlegs? How did we do on third and medium? And then they're on taking inventory of what route combinations, what run schemes gave them the most trouble. And then, okay, how do we take what's already in our menu and become better at defending these things that we struggled against in, um, in year, you know, in year two of the scheme. The other thing that, you know, I always tried to do when I was in, as a coordinator in the college level is you, you go back and you watch, okay, who are the best offenses in the country? Because what's going to happen is those offensive coaches all over the country are going to be studying these very same people. And, you know, what's the flavor of the week? Is it, you know, I don't want to get too technical here, but is it formation to the sideline? You know, for instance, the USF, they the UCF stuff with Kendall Bryles and Jeff Lebby and all those guys. It's, they're putting up bukuza points. I mean, so you want to be a step ahead because the offenses are going to follow the trends from what the best teams did this year. And you're going to have to be ready for that and not get caught, you know, proverbially with your, with your pants down early in the 2022 season because you don't want to be in reactionary mode uh, in the first or second game. So, you know, that, that's a long-winded answer, but that's what they're working on, you know, improved personnel, solidify the middle of the defense and then make sure you're ahead of the game and the trends that are going to be coming for 2022.
0: As we see here on Thursday, December 30th, we are 247 days away from NC State and East Carolina, September 3rd, 2022.
1: Brett, how fired up are you for this game? Well, I think both fan bases are going to be happy to play a football game since both kind of got screwed here. I mean, I, you know, it, it is what it is. I mean, when you've grown up in that stadium and anytime you, you got one of those boys from, from Chapel Hill or Raleigh coming in, that, that place will be a, a fever pitch on, on that Saturday. And, um, you know, I think it'll be a, I think it'll be a, a great game you know what I know state's going to probably come in as a top 20 team coming off the heels of you know I'll just call it a nine and a half win season because they don't apparently you can get four fit wins in Raleigh now and they count but yeah you know, I guess if I was getting a $50,000 bonus for I'd count it too so um anyway that's kind of my dig at coach Doran but you know that'll be two fan bases that'll be excited that You know, clearly one that expects to contend in the ACC Atlantic and another one who expects to contend uh, in the AAC. I I mean, do we even know the rest of the schedule, what's going to happen with everything? But So college football has no offseason. You know, it just has times when we're not playing games, you know, when there's plenty of stuff to keep us occupied, whether or not it's recruiting and, and junior days and then going through clinic season and spring spring football and and seeing what's going on, but a lot to be done, a lot to see how coach Houston and his staff are going to attack the portal, you know, with, with, you know, can we find a difference maker? Can we go get a, uh, an outside receiver or a rush guy or, you know, a long snapper, which is now an issue, but whatever the case is, but we'll, we'll see what happens. But I, I think it'll be a, it'll be a, fun time to be in Greenville next year for for the opener.
0: Yeah, I think it's poetic that Mike Houston said after his first game of his tenure at ECU, ironically against NC State and Raleigh, that things would be much different when ECU played NC State again in three years. And we'll get to see that take place in twenty twenty two. And I think we already are seeing that take place. And I think it'll be a much different game. Well, Brett, we have plenty of time to preview that, so we'll do that all uh, all next year. It was fun to look back at a winning season in twenty twenty one. Thanks again for all your insight and help on Hoist of Colors all year long. I know you've been busy with uh, with West Brunswick and everything, so we always appreciate your help, man.
1: Yep, fun year. Look forward to look forward to spring football and getting back at it again next year.
0: For Brett Hickman, I am Stephen Igo. That'll do it for our podcast. Thank you guys for listening to voice the colors.